Hello, everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. My guest today is Barbara Lang. She is on the D.C. Chamber of Commerce, and we also talked a little bit about her personal history as well as her book that is coming out, and this will be in the description of the show. What I wanted to talk about was we talked a little bit about this world that we live in where COVID-19 isn't exactly over, but we're moving forward, we're charging forward. Um, Some degree of recklessness might be included in that. I'm not really sure. But I thought we had a fascinating conversation. And please give it a listen. And also, she lives and works in in Washington, D.C., the seat of our nation's government. And we talked just briefly about the, you know, the life in D.C., etc. But anyway, uh, thank you so much. And uh, give this a listen. And I'll see you guys later. All right. Bye-bye. This call is now being recorded. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the History Voyager. I'm here with Barbara Lang, and we are going to have a very fascinating conversation. I'm almost 100% certain. So, Barbara, can I call you Barbara or Miss Lang? Absolutely. Absolutely. Barbara's fine. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's dive into t- telling everybody who you are, first of all. Uh, well, I am, uh, like I said, I don't know where to start, um, but I'm a, uh, a woman living in Washington, D.C., uh, from Florida originally, uh, from Jacksonville, Florida, lived okay. in Atlanta for 16 years, uh, moved there and uh, to Washington because of career changes and jobs like so many of us, and um I am, since I've been in Washington now over 30 years, and I came here for a position with IBM, and uh, they moved me here. And then uh, a few years later, um, I uh, was offered an offices position at Fannie Mae. So I spent 10 years at Fannie Mae and then went on to become the president and CEO of the D.C. Chamber of Commerce. And uh, did that for a little over 12 years. And um, I am uh, currently, I have a small consulting firm called Lang Strategies, LLC. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing this consulting work for about seven years now. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, had uh, my husband and I uh, moved here together. We had been married for a very long time. And uh, he passed away about four and a half years ago. So I have a uh, wonderful daughter, um, mm-hmm. my only child, and uh, and she has a little girl that is my heart. I have a, a little eight-year-old granddaughter named Olivia. That is so cool. And I'm sorry about your, your husband passing away. Thank you very much. The main reason that I was interested to talk to you is as I tell all of my guests, and I believe I told you or your assistant, maybe both, I see my podcast 
as an oral history cleverly disguised as a podcast. Um, so I re- I'm fascinated to talk to anybody that has anything to do at all with technology because I honestly think we're in a revolution, a technical technological revolution. So why don't you talk, um, first of all, so what were you at IBM? Well, I had um, I had several roles, um, and I moved between a headquarters location and the the what we call the field, which was where the sales took place. So, and that's kind of back then. That was how you rotated your career at IBM. You go to headquarters for a while, then you go back to the field, and and so you go back and forth. And hopefully, in each role, you will have picked up some experiences. That helped you for uh, for that next role. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, I did I had several jobs. I did a lot in administration coming up, and in fact, that's where I was hired. I was hired in administration, and then went into uh, management and did some management um, uh, development. Uh, I was on the staff. Uh, then uh, did um, a, a stint in product forecasting. Uh, so I was kind of on the finance side, though I'm not a financial guru at all, but uh, but but did a lot in in uh, in product forecasting. And in fact, I think when I left um, uh, left IBM, uh, that was the role I was in as uh, a manager in product forecasting for a certain product line that uh, that that IBM had at the time. Are you, are you allowed to tell us what that product was? Or sure, it, it was the DASD products for high-end computers, so the, the for the big computers. So mm-hmm. it was, um, and DASD was the storage unit, so where you store all the data, and uh-huh. it was for the large mainframe computers. Okay. I did have another product line for a little bit um, uh, at the same time uh, with. What was what was then, you know, our personal computers, our PCs, right? And, uh, and some standalone printers. And just for the the benefit of you know an audience in the future, or maybe even people now, um, what? Okay, so when you when we talk about storage medium back, you know, are we talking about uh, magnetic tape, or are we talking about uh, diskettes, or are we talking about what are we talking about specifically? When you talk about well, it's it's a lot. It looks like a refrigerator back then. I have no idea oh. what it looks like now, but yeah. it was a, a large unit, uh, and and it was just it was a store. Is they called it DASD, D A S D, and mm. it stored all of your data into this large refrigerator, and this large refri- refrigerator was taking all the the information mm. off of the mainframe computer, the huge. Computers. Everything is so much smaller now. But back mm-hmm. then, uh, that was this large mainframe con- computer. In fact, if I'm, if I'm testing myself, but I think it was called the 360 back then. Yeah. Uh, I, I have no idea because I've been away from all of that for quite a while, so I have no idea what what the replacement product is now. And I'm sure it is much smaller uh, than it was back then. The footprint is much smaller. I, I would wonder if it would even be cloud-based, but um, the thing I'm, the reason I'm asking is because I feel like we, like we, 
because of COVID, we had to take all these tools that used to be toys and make them tools, like Skype and, and like that. And I think it's showing a lot of people how far technologically we really are and are not in a lot of ways, but also are, right? And how dependent we all all are on the technology. Exactly. Yeah. And also, like, the thing I picked up on really early was the, um, and I, I mean inequality, of course, in the way most people mean it, but also in the way, like, you can you can be living next door to somebody, and they might be better set up to work from home than you are, and you're not able to get the cable company or whatever out there fast enough to get you into the new world, Right. Call a lot of people people flat-footed. Well, Um, and and COVID, I mean, COVID kind of did that because, you know, mm -hmm. most people will, yeah, a lot of people will have a a laptop at home. Uh, But but certainly if you don't have a laptop, you've got an iPad and you've got your cell phone uh, that gets your emails. And that was kind of all you had to have at home. But um, but with COVID, uh, you know, starting back in March last year, you really needed to have access to everything that you had in the office. You need to have it at home. You needed to have um, so that there's a company out there called Logitech, mm-hmm. and they have they have all these patents on web-based uh, cameras and whatever, like internet cameras and stuff. Mm-hmm. And their stock price at one point, was more valuable than it had ever been because of all these cameras that people just needed. And, um, okay, so tell me about, so how, how has being a woman of color, do you think that's impacted you at all? Oh, sure. Um, uh, in some positive ways, but, but certainly, um, in, uh, in negative ways as well. I, I came up in a time when there were very few women and certainly no women of color, uh, as role models. So the people that helped me along the way were usually white men. Uh, and, um, you know, I was gr- very grateful for that, but there was, there was always um, uh, a different standard held uh, to me. And my, I, I remember my mother saying, you know, when I was in high school and then when I went off to college, that, um, that you will always have to be better than your white counterpart. And, and, and to a large degree, that, is still, um, uh, that still exists today. Um, you know, I, people will judge me uh, by a different standard. Uh, than they will a white woman or a white male. Uh, and I have just always grown up that know that that is the way it is. And I had to be better then. I had to sell myself better. I had to look better. Uh, and that's the standard by which we operate. You know, I'm, I'm reading a book right now, um, really from, uh, the, from a, a small book club at my church. And it is, it is about racial reconciliation. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it talks about white privilege and all the things that people of color, particularly African Americans, have had to deal with over the years that, um, 
people not of color did not have to deal with. You know, you just don't even think about it. Uh, where everything mm-hmm. I do has to be a very conscious decision as you uh, as you move forward. One thing um, I was not aware of um, was um, I had a, a guest on my show. I've had him on twice, actually. Um, and we went to college together. Um, but he runs a couple of nonprofits, uh, basically around voting in my state. Uh-huh. Um, he told me, and I, I honestly was not aware of this, that apparently, like, when I registered to vote when I was 18, because my family has been very civically minded, like I was, um, taught from as far back as I can remember that my ancestors fought in the American Revolution and, you know, you need to vote, whatever. But I was not aware of how it has greatly become more difficult to register to vote in my state than it was when I was 18. And you're you're in Georgia, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay, that's right. Uh Uh-huh. Number one. And also, like, I wasn't aware, for example, that uh, a whole lot of black people uh, of an age weren't necessarily born with a with a birth certificate because they were weren't born in a hospital, right? Um, and okay. if you're not, yeah. And I, my father, um, I, I can remember when my father uh, got sick and, and died many years ago. Um, his birth was recorded in the Bible. Mm-hmm. There wasn't uh, there wasn't the birth certificate back then. So, uh, so you're you're absolutely right uh, on the differences um, that uh, that exist for uh, for people of color, particularly African Americans. Mm-hmm. 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 And I just wasn't aware. Like, and when I told him, like, so I had to transfer my voting um, where I voted, right? And I just walked through what I did like this simple step of just walking into the library and like just signing a paper and they needed a bill and I didn't have one on me. So I said, I have a Netflix envelope. Will that do? And the lady said, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I recall, she was a black lady too. So it wasn't like a, a racial thing necessarily. It was just, it's a lot easier to transfer voting if you've already been registered and it is the, Register to begin with. Right, right, right. And and, and now what's happening is uh, not just about registering. Um, States, after the the, um, the 2020 elections, states are making it very difficult for people of color to vote. So even if you've gotten through the registration piece, you look at Mm -hmm. how hard uh, they are making it and, and if I recall, some of that did happen in Georgia. If I remember, there was some legislation in Georgia. I know that uh, Texas has done an awful lot. Uh, Florida is looking at uh, contemplating doing a similar thing. So even if you get registered, they're just making it hard for you to go and vote. Well, I think, I mean, I think one of the issues is that, like in Georgia, in where I live in Georgia, not Georgia overall, but my specific part of north what we would call northwest metro you know northwest georgia so metro atlanta right 
um, you basically, unless you're very lucky, and I don't care if you're black, white, purple, Martian, I don't care. Unless you're very lucky, you're not going to be able to get to a polling place and vote in person because of traffic. Ah. So, so you almost have to vote absentee in mm-hmm. some form or fashion, either early voting or absentee or, or what have you. And I'm going to talk to this lady tonight who did a master's in political psychology. And she says that there's a certain huge percentage of our population that she thinks being uh, interested in politics at all is genetic. You know, the act of being interested in politics is genetic. And she says that there's just a lot of people that don't have that gene. So if you're not interested in politics, you're not going to take the time to, you know, to plan out how to vote. Mm-hmm. You know. I, I agree. And people don't know how important uh, it, it is. And even you, mm. in the smaller local elections, because those become bigger deals if you don't get the right people in at the local levels, whether that's the school board or the city council or whatever, you know. Uh, and, and that's, mm. you know, I'm a political junkie, so I, I watch the news all day long if I'm in my office. And, uh, and so I'm very involved and, and we were brought up that way. But you're right, there are so many people that just don't get it how important it is to their well-being. Well, and I, I mean, I, I'm aware because I have, you know, I studied politics in college and, like that, so I'm aware of how just the minutia, the 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 granular level of what politics is in somebody's life in modern mm-hmm. society. Um, like I, I talked to a fella uh, with who was in the armed services, and he had talked about how he had been in the armed service. He was a he wasn't a doctor, but he was something medical in the armed services. And he was there for Ebola. And he was there for COVID. And he had talked about how with Ebola, they were ready. They were rocking, they were rocking and rolling. They were ready. They were ready to go. They were ready for the worst possible scenario. And he said, we treated two people and I played a lot of solitaire. And he said, let me tell you what. I've been to, I had been to Africa to treat Ebola. So I was happy to play that solitaire. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. But how do you think uh, COVID, do you, okay, I'm going to ask an easy softball question. Do you think political leadership affected COVID in this country? Oh, I, I think so. Um, yeah. Because, because uh, there was such denial that it was uh, coming from the president himself last year. There was such mm-hmm. denial, uh, you know, oh, we got two or three people. Uh, oh, but, you know, now we've got 15 people, but it'll be down to zero. Uh, we're going to be totally opened up in, uh, by Easter in April. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. n- and so we downplayed um, uh, how critical this was, and we ignored all of the warning signs. And with the the messaging, it's just why you you um, uh, you have 
so many people that don't even believe that COVID is real, even though we have over 700,000 people that have died from it. And, yeah. uh, and, and it's, it's just unbelievable, unbelievable to me because it's almost like this cult-like following. Uh, and, mm. It, mm. Uh, and scary. It's scary for our democracy. Mm. Yes, ma'am. Um, okay. Now, in your capacity as um, in the uh, Chamber of Commerce up there in D.C., uh-huh. uh, how has the business community, did the business community have to take the lead on COVID or, or were they waiting for something that didn't come and then they had to take the lead or, or are they taking the lead? You know, I think, I think our, our local government did a pretty good job. Uh, mm. The mayor and the city council and our health department, and, of course, being right here in Washington, uh, we had the conflict with the federal government that was that was not taking it as serious at the time. And so, but our, our local government, I think, did a pretty good job of uh, trying to get, you know, people, well, last year there was no vaccination, but trying to get people masked and the socially distanced. And, uh, and, and the, the city shut down. I mean, all businesses had to close, uh, for, and we were closed probably for about six months or so before things opened up again, started to open up slowly last fall. And of course, businesses took a big hit, uh, on it because, uh, and I, I saw some stats the other day that 59 restaurants in DC itself, not Maryland and Virginia, just in the District of Columbia, closed and did not reopen. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, I've seen something in my travels around Atlanta. That I want to see Busey. I see a whole lot of people out at, like, and I'm talking early afternoon, mid morning, like a whole lot of people driving around. But I don't see parking lots anywhere near the capacity, anywhere close to it. You and mean how it was before COVID? Yes, ma'am. It's like you see, I see more traffic than I ever used to see. Uh huh. But I don't see. It's like I don't see the logical. Oh, okay. Well, they're going there, right? Those people. Okay, they're going over there. Like, all right. It's. But I wonder. If a lot of people are having to drive to, are we closing up businesses and having people meet in people's houses is what I'm wondering. Well, there certainly is uh, is some of that. I know our occupancy level um, is still not where we would want it to be in the offices uh, in downtown. And so, so many businesses are still having this mixed bag of working from home. Uh, and, uh, and maybe not every day of the week, uh, but, uh, but certainly a lot of, a lot of time. So I think you are right. And I don't, I, I don't see the traffic here though. I don't go downtown as much. I'm in upper northwest DC. And, uh, and so I may go down, uh, downtown once a week maybe. And so the traffic does not appear to be as bad as it was prior to, prior to COVID. Cause, get, cause we're, you know, we, we, Washington from a land standpoint is, um, a small city. It really is. Mm. It's an important city, but mm. we don't have uh, a lot of 
square square miles around. It's it's small, relatively small, so it gets congested, and you don't see quite the same congestion that we saw uh, before COVID. So I think people are still meeting. I mean, I, as an example, I don't go downtown a lot, but when I have to meet somebody in person, I will meet them at a at a restaurant where we could sit outside. Uh, and uh, and and I think a lot of people are uh, are doing that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, now, okay, do you think? I mean, how? We're what, like a year, little more than a little over a year into this. Do you think we'll still be doing this type of thing this time next year? Sadly, I think um, we may be maybe a little less, but I'm sadly because you've got so many people that refuse to get vaccinated, and so mm. uh, until we get a hold on on that. Um, mm. that, that that variant is just going to pass itself around and even pass itself to the vaccinated people who are um, whose uh, whose immunity is is compromised. So just yeah. like uh, Colin Powell uh, passed away just a few days ago, and uh, and he mm. had been vaccinated and was scheduled to get his um, uh, his booster this week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but his cancer treatment and the Parkinson had compromised him such that the vaccine did not do the same work that it did for me uh, because yeah. I didn't have those things. So uh, unless people think about other people and care about other people, not just themselves, you have this thing still going around, you know, in, in D.C. itself. And, mm. and I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry to see that. I think only as the last numbers I saw that only 57, 58% of the population in the district are totally vaccinated. Yeah. yeah. You've got... Disturbing. Yeah. You've got people here in Georgia who, once you get out of Metro Atlanta, um, that don't even believe it's real. Oh, no. I know that. Like, you know, even even now, they they think it's they don't believe it's real. Um, and it's just so, you know, I was watching, um, this thing, uh, David McCullough. I was watching, uh, this talk he gave like 10 years ago, um, on YouTube. And he talked about, um, how he thought that America would have come through the Spanish flu different today than they did back in 1919. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be like, hey, man, uh, no. Actually, no. <laughs> well, we I think more people have died uh, from COVID, right, than, than the Spanish flu, right? Well, the Spanish flu has had a dramatic reappraisal from historians in the last 10 years. Uh, so, no, actually. Um, but un- under the classical interpretation of the Spanish flu, you're right. That is the the people who died of the Spanish flu on the death certificate. Right. Like the the doctor said, you died of the Spanish flu uh, on the death certificate. Yes, but there there were a lot of people that died of uh, the colds and flus that year. Mm-hmm. Were, so now historians now think, you know, 
a lot of those people might have died of the Spanish flu. Um, and actually, more people died because somebody else had the Spanish flu than they actually died of the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of people died because somebody else died of it. Um, like train conductors and dying. There was a train conductor in Pennsylvania that he died on the train and he ended up killing a whole train full of people. Oh, wow. He just infected everybody. Yeah. No, he died and they crashed into the... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I see what you're saying. They had an accident because... Okay. Ah. <laughs> oh. Ah. Yeah, and there was also, the Spanish flu uh, mutated to where you could die in, like, you literally died in public. You literally dropped dead in the course of an afternoon or whatever. It mutated pretty bad. And so there was no lead up to it where you were yeah, sick right. for a little bit. Okay. Yeah. And there's actually some people, and I guess I'm one of these people, that wonders if it was the flu at all. It might have been something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, <clears throat> anyway, so tell me about, you wanted to come on here to talk about a book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I um, I published a, a book, my, my one and only, <laughs> uh, earlier this year. Uh, and the name of the book is Madam President. Leadership Lessons from the Top of the Ladder. Uh, it's a relatively small book. It's, you know, about, about a little less than a hundred pages. And, but it's a different kind of leadership book. Uh, in each chapter, I talk about something that happened. Uh, you know, and I give a real life example of a leadership challenge that I had. Even naming the people, or I gave them fake names, but they were real people. And, and how I handle uh, each situation, uh, good or bad. And at the end of each chapter, I talk about, so what is the lesson that you learned from this? And I would give one, two, or three examples of, of the lessons. And the reason I did it this way, when you read most leadership books, uh, it is a lot of verbiage on you do this, step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and you do this. But what I wanted to do and make mine different is to talk about this is a real-life situation, and this is how I handled it, and sometimes good and sometimes not so good. And and so, uh, so I, I published the book in late March this year. And so it, it um, you know, it, it um, um, I've been working on it off and on for a few years, and um, I finally got it out of the door. I had the time. In fact, COVID gave me the time to finish up on it because I yeah. had time to do, you know, to actually sit down and think and do it. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, COVID is obviously horrible. I mean, but... If there is a positive, it's that it caused reflection. You know. And I just have talked to so many content creators who have um, used the time to reflect and finish their project or start a project or things right. like that. Um, yeah, so... What do you, what's your, uh, so tell me about Lane Consulting. 
Uh, well, Lang Strategies is, um, you know, a small consulting firm. There are five or six of us. And we do uh, leadership change, culture change, leadership development, and, and how do you change the culture within an organization, which really amounts to behavioral change, quite frankly. And um, uh, and then we uh, we do some strategy with uh, uh, for, for companies or with companies sitting down. How do you change you uh, uh, your strategic direction or or mount a new strategic direction? And then what's the what's the staff? What's the makeup of the kind of people you need uh, to move forward in this? We also do some operational uh, uh, stuff, looking at their back office, are all the processes operating. Uh, the way they should, uh, or do you have some conflicts here? Uh, do do you have the person that's um, uh, writing the checks also approving the bills, and you know where there would be uh, some opportunity for fraud? And so we we go in and we help people look at those kinds of things. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm sure. Uh, in fact, I know you know you can be good at one thing, but you're not good at maybe the administrative or actual business parts of, of running a business. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I we I de- we developed this practice based on the things I learned during my 12 years at the Chamber of Commerce, and we saw what businesses were lacking, what they weren't doing, and where, where there were some voids. And so that's what kind of fuels us in terms of how we – uh, how we develop this consulting business. I see that. Yeah, that, that's a that's a real use. That's a real need. Um, so what 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 is the future? Do you see for Washington D.C.? Well, I think uh, Washington itself will always be uh, a viable uh, city. People think of us as a government town. And yes, that was true years ago, but we really have a far more, uh, have, there's local Washington that is really exciting. Um, uh, we have, um, uh, before COVID, uh, a lot of great restaurants here. In fact, we were beginning to maybe rival, uh, uh, New York. Certainly you have all of the, um, uh, the, the monuments and all the things that national Washington brings you. Uh, but we have unique architecture here, and the neighborhoods, uh, many of our neighborhoods are beautiful, and lots of green space here, uh, and people don't think of us that way, but lots of green space, and so it's it's a, a very vibrant city, and I think it will always will be, uh, because we're the seat of government, uh, Washington is not going to go away, and and, you know, the, the mayors over the last two or three mayors, including the current mayor, have done very well um, uh, uh, preserving our money and our, our um, uh, ensuring that we, uh, we have uh, a lot of money in the bank for a COVID kind of experience that will kind of take you down, and, and we did. We have, uh, we have quite a bit of money in reserves that most states did not have that kind of money in reserves. So we've done, um, you know, COVID, you know, hit us just like everybody else. But mm. but we were able to manage it, I think, a lot better than others. And of course, we're the scene of all the protests that come here, all the mm. rallies, 
uh, and uh, and so we're used to dealing with that kind of thing probably a lot better than other cities are. Let me ask, because um, I, I I went to Washington um, a couple of times, um, but it kind of was striking to me how the District of Columbia, which I I assume the District of Columbia are actually the city limits of Washington. Yes. Is that okay? Yes. So the District of Columbia, right? Uh-huh. But then you come out of the district, but you think you're still in Washington. Yeah. Like you you know you but so that's in Maryland or Virginia or Yeah, yeah. I um, mean the, the Virginia going to Virginia you have to cross a bridge to get to Virginia, so you have gotta cross some water. So uh so for for the most part you know when you're leaving the city, Washington and going into Virginia. In Maryland though, uh that's not the case. Um, you know, where I live in upper northwest um, uh, a half a mile down the road is Maryland. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't know, I mean, when you leave me, I know because I live here, but when I cross Western Avenue, uh, I'm in Maryland, in, in the Bethesda, really Chevy Chase, and then over into Bethesda, Maryland. And so it's all part of what we call the uh, the D, uh, the DMV. Um, uh, the district the di- of Maryland and Virginia. The district, the district of Maryland and Virginia. Okay. The district of Maryland and Virginia. The DMV. <laughs> the DMV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um. All right. Well, cool. Uh, Barbara, did you have anything else you wanted to tell the internet? No, no, no. I'm I am fine. If people need any change management and leadership development. Uh, we're your we're firm and love to talk to people, but um, and my book is on Amazon, so uh, you I'll can tell you get what, a feel for me. If you email me all those links, um, I'll put it up uh, today. Okay. I'll just uh, put it, I'll just put this out today. Um, all right, people. This has been uh, Ben Kitchings, and uh, as always, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. Okay, Barbara, if you just hang with me for one second, please. Okay.